So Daniel chapter 8, I encourage you to be there. We're going to read a little bit from the chapter. I encourage you, if you want to get the full, the full uh, picture of it, the, the, the fullness of it, then I encourage you to, as you go home, just read through the entire chapter if you've not. Uh, I'm going to kind of start in Daniel chapter 8, and then I'm going to jump to the New Testament as we process what we've learned from Daniel and how that, that would apply to us as New Testament believers today. And so, um, as we think about Daniel chapter 8, I want to ask this question. Have you anticipated something? And as you've been anticipating that, you, 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 you really think that there's, it's going to play out a certain way, and you're really looking forward to the way that it plays out. And in your mind, you have it all kind of planned based on what, what you know or what little you know. And so you have this kind of vision of how it's going to look, and then by the time it plays out, it's not at all what you actually anticipated. I'm pretty sure that most of us can probably say, yeah, I've, I've been in a situation like that. Uh, I know that there have been times in the past when I've approached Christmas, and I'm, I think of Christmas in a certain way, and I'm, all, I'm really kind of just thinking that it's going to play out in that nostalgic way of when I was a kid. I'm like, oh, it's going to be like this, it's going to be like that, and then by the time Christmas is all done, you're just like, wow, that wasn't like what I envisioned at all. I wonder whether or not Daniel wrestled with a little bit the vision that he's given in Daniel chapter 8. As I think about where Daniel's at right now in this particular passage, Daniel knew, and we'll discover that when we get into Daniel 9 after the, after the Christmas season, that Daniel understood from Scripture how things were going to roll out, at least to some extent, for the children of Israel who were currently in captivity in Babylon. He knew that at some point the children of Israel would return home to the promised land, to the land of Israel, that God would deliver them out of exile in Babylon and put them back into their home country. But as, Daniel is as it's revealed to Daniel through Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 and now Daniel 8, I wonder how he processes, because we're not given all the ins and outs on, on he personally, how he how he processes this news that what he knows Scripture is laid out for them. This is how things are going to go when you return to Jerusalem. But as he now is given information about what's going to happen after that, how he processes this news, because it's not maybe how he was originally thinking it was going to play. In Daniel chapter 7, it connects to Daniel chapter 2, the statue of Nebuchadnezzar, the four beasts that we talked about last week. And then in Daniel chapter 8, he has a vision of two of those kingdoms with a little bit more detail. And I just want to read the first few verses of Daniel chapter 8 so that we can see what kind of vision he gets here. So in Daniel chapter 8, verse 1, it says this, In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after one that had appeared to me earlier, referring back to the one that we talked about last week. I saw the vision, and as I watched, I was in the fortress of the city of Susa in the province of Elam. I saw in the vision that I was beside the Uli Canal, 
I looked up and there was a ram standing beside the canal. It had two horns. The two horns were long, but one was longer than the other, and the longer one came up at last, came up last. I saw the ram charging to the west and the north and the south. No animal could stand against it, and there was no rescue from its power. It did whatever it wanted, and it became great. As I was observing, a male goat appeared, coming up from the west across the surface of the entire earth without touching the ground. The goat had a conspicuous horn between its eyes. It came near the two-horned ram that I, had, that I had seen standing beside the canal and rushed at him with savage fury. I saw him approaching the ram and infuriated with him. He struck the ram and broke its two horns and the ram was not strong enough to stand against him. The goat threw him to the ground and trampled him, and there was no one to rescue the ram from his power. The male goat acted even more arrogantly, and when he became powerful, the large horn was broken. Four conspicuous horns came up in its place, pointing toward the four winds of heaven. So this is the the vision that Daniel has. If I continue on, he'll have a vision of a small horn that comes up. Um, among the other horns and really become, comes to prominence. And this particular horn wages war against God's people, restricts the worship of God, acts even more arrogantly and declares himself as the greatest. And as Daniel's processing this vision, which disturbs him greatly, God sends the angel Gabriel to explain to him what the vision's all about. And as we read the interpretation of the vision, we discover at the end of Daniel chapter 8 that this vision is about two kingdoms, the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians and the kingdom of the Greeks. So to Daniel, this is future stuff that's going to happen. To us, this is past stuff that's already happened. We need to understand that the little horn that Daniel has a vision of here is not the little horn that was described in Daniel 7. That's the Antichrist. The one in this particular vision is actually who we recognize historically as Antiochus Epiphanes. Just to make sure that you're clear on that, it actually says in Daniel chapter 8, verse 20, the two-horned ram you saw represents the kings of the Medes and the Persians, the Medo-Persian Empire. One horn representing the Medes, the other one, the longer one, the more powerful one, representing the Persian Empire. The shaggy goat represented the king of Greece, and the large horn between its eyes represented its first king. That would be Alexander the Great. Then he sees this little horn that grows up, and it's Antiochus Epiphanes. And I just want to give you a little bit of information about this character, because historically, if you don't know anything about him... He was one of the worst oppressors of the children of Israel throughout history. Boyce says this, there can be little doubt that this prophecy uh, of the career of the Greek king Antiochus Epiphanes, who was one of the greatest enemies of the Jewish people in all history, Antiochus IV was the eighth king of the Seleucid dynasty, which itself was one of the four powers into which the Greek empire was divided after the death of Alexander. Daniel describes him as being wicked and a master of intrigue 
And that's exactly what he was. He began by usurping the throne from his nephew. He immediately after that launched into a campaign of ruthless conquest in the Near East. In Jerusalem, he tried to impose religious and cultural uniformity by suppressing Jewish worship. Already in 175 BC, at the beginning of his reign, he expelled the godly priest Onias III and replaced him with one of Onias's Hellenizing young, younger brothers, Jason. He put an end to daily sacrifices at the temple. He forbade the circumcision of Jewish infants, and he made it a crime to possess a copy of the Jewish scriptures. Not only that, but when he came into Jerusalem and he took over, he brought 20,000 troops, and when he got there, he erected an idol of Zeus in the temple area. Then he desecrated the altar in the, the temple by offering swine on it, which was an unclean animal to the Jewish people. With this greatest affront to the faithful to faithful Judaism that could possibly imagine the idol became known to the Jews as the abomination of desolation, and that later served as the type of the future abomination to be caused by the Antichrist in the last days. Daniel says that this little horn would consider himself superior, and this was certainly true of Antiochus. His name comes from the inscription that he minted or had minted on coins at the time that bore his, in his image, the, the inscription says this, Theos Epiphanes, God made manifest. He claimed to be God made manifest. Now eventually the Maccabeans would raise up, rise up and revolt against him and overthrow him. But Daniel says that he actually would die by God's hand, not by man's hand. And we discover that even though a revolt happened and the Maccabeans rose up and overthrew him, they didn't succeed in executing him. He, in fact, died of either natural causes or some nasty illness, but no human being took his life. A fulfillment of the prophecy of Daniel chapter 8. The very end of this vision and the interpretation of this vision, at the very end of it all, Daniel says this, I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for days. And then I got up and I went about the king's business. And I was greatly disturbed by the vision and could not understand it. That's the extent of Daniel chapter 8. It helps us to understand Daniel's vision a little bit better. It helps us to be able to look at the history part of it and say, okay, so that's what he was talking about. That's what he saw in his vision. But I don't really want to hang there because for us, that's all historical past. We can definitely take from this passage of Scripture some clear truths. One, that God's Word is always true because God gave this vision to Daniel and it came to pass as God said it would because God is always right and true and honest and his word is clear. We know that God is in complete control. He is sovereign over all things. That God from the very beginning has this all planned out and he says this clearly to Daniel. Daniel, this is what's going to happen. Why? Because I'm God and I know it all and I've got it all planned out. 
These things are abundantly clear, and that in and of itself can be a comfort and a strength and and a help to us. It can guide us when we encounter issues in our lives. We can say, you know what? This is not catching God off guard, and God's got a plan in the midst of all of this, and I can trust God because he's always true and right all the time. That would be sufficient in and of itself. I could say, we're done, I could pray, we could be on our way. But you would say, Dave's never that, done that early. So I can't do that. But I, what I want us to, to look at just briefly this morning is how do we as Christians, in light of the fact that Scripture tells us that there are things that are going to be coming in our future that are disturbing to us, that are unnerving to us, that we find difficult to grasp. How do we live in light of that knowledge, in the light of that revelation from Scripture? See, Daniel says that he was greatly disturbed by the vision, he could not understand it. I don't believe for a second that he couldn't understand the facts of it, the details of it, as that vision was interpreted for him. Maybe he didn't understand all the the nuances and exactly when and how this is exactly going to happen. But the concept, the overall, was not hard for him to understand. He knew that these next two kingdoms were going to rise up after the one that he was in the middle of. But I wonder, and it's just a speculation on my part, but I wonder, as Daniel knew what the Scriptures taught him about the fact that at some point the exile in Babylon was going to come to an end and that the Jewish people were going to be able to return home and they were going to be able to worship God again and that they were going to be back in the city of Jerusalem and the temple was going to be rebuilt because he knew that that promise was so in the book of Jeremiah that I wonder whether or not he was wrestling with, I know that God's going to restore us home and he's going to allow us to do that, but why would he allow this next kingdom to rise up? Why would he allow this this guy Antiochus Epiphanes, as we know him, to to wage war on God's people, to prevent us from worshiping him, to, to do the things that he's going to do? Why would God allow that to happen? Like we're not even home yet and already I'm getting information from God that that, uh, the next worst thing is going to happen. And yet, this passage of Scripture says, I, Daniel, was overcome and I lay sick for days. It did impact him. The, The revelation of this vision impacted him greatly. But you know what? It doesn't stop there. It says this, then I got up and I went about the king's business. See, In light of what God told Daniel, Daniel continued to live faithfully for God with the knowledge of what was going to happen. The hardship that was going to happen. The fact that it wasn't going to be all rainbows and unicorns or puppy dogs or whatever you want to call it. In light of that, he got up and he went about the king's business. Lord willing, if if we can get to Daniel 9 in the new year, we'll discover that he did what he always did. He prayed and he read scripture. He worshiped God. He lived out his faith in the midst of adversity, serving the king, but serving the king of kings first and foremost. And as we look at Daniel's life, I want us to think, 
The scriptures tell us right now as believers that we're living in the last days and that we are anticipating the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, the, the church has always lived in light of the understanding that Jesus could come back at any time. And that the scriptures have given us clear instruction as followers of Christ on how we are to live in light of the days that we live in. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, excuse me, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, there we go, that'll be better. Paul says this to Timothy, now know this, hard times will come in the last days. I want you to ask yourself the question, does this sound familiar at all? For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, proud, demeaning, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, without love for what is good, traitors, reckless, conceited, Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to the form of godliness but, but denying its power. Paul says to Timothy, avoid these people. Then he talks about those that are false teachers or those that infect the household with philosophies that are ungodly. He says among them are those who worm their way into households and deceive gullible women, overwhelmed by sins and led astray by a variety of passions, always learning but never able to come to the knowledge of truth. It says, just like Janus and Jambers resisted Moses so that these also resist the truth, they are men who are corrupt in mind, worthless in regard to the faith. As I Read that passage, and Paul lays out, hard times will come in the last days. Daniel looked at the fact that hard times were going to come, and how did he respond to those hard times? He got up, and he lived faithfully for God as he always had. As we as Christians today, as we as those who have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, as we understand that we are living in the, in the last days, we are living in light of the fact that Jesus could come back at any time, we live in light of the fact that our world is looking more and more and more like this. How should we live? How do we respond when we read this passage of Scripture and say hard times are coming? Some of these statements, lovers of self, we know that we wrestle with selfishness. We know that sometimes we think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. Scripture makes it abundantly clear to us as believers that we are not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. I got thinking about John the Baptist and his humble declaration that there's gonna be one coming after him who he wasn't even worthy to, 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 to kneel down and lace his sandals. That's humility. That's not thinking more highly of myself than I ought to. Paul describes himself as a servant, an under rower. He was an apostle. He was raised up by God. 
to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. He had the privilege to be taught by Jesus himself. He had an amazing encounter on the road to Damascus that resulted in his conversion. And he, talking to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians, says, I'm an under rower. I'm like the lowest person, the lowest slave on a galley ship rowing at the very bottom, the first that'll drown when that ship goes down. That's, that's how he thought of himself. I'm just a humble servant. In a world that is all about loving self, we as Christians can really stand out for Christ just simply by having godly humility. But there are others. I think of the word irreconcilable. There seems to be this, this attitude in our culture now where there's no way that you can reconcile. If you have a particular viewpoint, this person has a particular viewpoint, it's almost like those viewpoints, you can't reconcile, you can't even come to any sort of agreement. I don't want to hear what you have to say. I'm right. You're wrong. But even within Christian homes, there are families that are breaking apart, and these Christians can't seem to find reconciliation. How is that? That's an example of where our, our godless society is, not where Christians ought to be. We as Christians are commanded to forgive. We forgive because God has forgiven us. When we come to grips with the fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross of Calvary for our sin, He died for my sin, He's forgiven me of all of the things that I've ever done that is an affront to Him. If I've been forgiven so much, why am I not willing to forgive somebody else? That's a character quality of a believer. I'm quick to forgive. Then we've got philosophies and false teaching that are infecting our homes. And the, the phrase, the way that it's described here, those that worm their way into households. It's subtle. It's deceitful. Ask ourselves the question, what might be worming its way into our households that takes us from the truth of God's Word, that's starting to convince us of things that are, that's not true, that are lies, when the Bible tells us something otherwise? I want to draw, us our, to, uh, draw our attention really quickly to just what Paul, Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3. He talks about the, the, the last days as well. He says, dear friends, in chapter 3, verse 1, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you. Both letters I want you to stir up, stir up your sincere understanding by way of remembering so that you recall the words previously spoken by the holy prophets and the command of our Lord and Savior through his apostles. Above all, be aware that of this. Scoffers will come in the last days, scoffing and following their own evil desires, saying, where is this coming that was promised? Ever since our ancestors fell asleep, all things will continue as they have been since the very beginning of creation. They deliberately overlooked this. By the word of God, by the word of God, the heavens came into being so long ago, and the earth was brought from water and through water, and through these the word the world, excuse me, of that time perished when it was flooded. By the same word, the present heavens and earth will be stored up for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. 
Verse 9, a very familiar passage says, The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not willing that any should perish, but all come to repentance. And then he says this, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And then he goes on, he says, How are you going to live, though, in light of all of this? And understanding this, how are you to live? First, in light of Christ's promised return, we are to live godly lives. Peter says this in verse 11, since all these things are to be dissolved in this way, it is clear what sort of people you should be in holy conduct and godliness. In the light of the fact that Christ will be coming back one day, we need to live as believers in Jesus Christ, godly lives. See, the things that were described in, first, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, those sins, that way of life, should never be characterizing the life of a, of a believer. I should not be called a lover of self. I shouldn't be un, irreconcilable. I shouldn't be a slanderer. These things should not characterize me as a born-again believer. In fact, we, as we look at those things listed in 1 Timothy, we can look at them and say, what does a Christ, what, what a Christ follower look like in that? Well, you know what? I'm quick to forgive. I'm one that doesn't tear people down. I'm one that builds people up. I'm one that is honest and truthful. I live with integrity. I live faithfully for God the way that God has called me to live. Number two, in light of Christ's promised return, we are to live discerning lives. Peter says this in Second Peter three seventeen. Therefore, dear friends, since you know this in advance, be on your guard so that you are not led astray by error of lawless people and fall from your stable position. As we look around, there are all sorts of philosophies out there. There are all sorts of teachings out there, and some of them are worming their way into churches where you have pastors standing up there and telling you how to feel good about yourself and you can achieve this and you can believe this and you can do this and you're a good person and not bothering to call out sin for what sin is. For not telling us that we need to wholly rely on the Holy Spirit working in our lives, convicting us of sin. And when God convicts us of sin, we are quick to confess it and repent of it and turn from it and walk the way that God's called us to walk. We've got churches where those standing up there are talking about the fact that they have this prophetic word and they're going to give it to you. And it's a special revelation that God's given to them directly, and you can't know it, but they're going to tell you about it. When Scripture tells us that this is God's Word, this is the real revealed Word of God. If I ever stand up in here and tell you that I've got a special Word from the Lord that you can't get from the Word of God, you need to send me out. Because this is God's Word. I can know what God wants me to know right from the truth of Scripture. That's false teaching and error that's getting into the church. But I think of what worms our way into our, uh, into our homes. We are to be on, the, on guard. It, it doesn't take five seconds to turn a program on today. And we're indoctrinated by the world's concept of sexuality. 
not biblical sexuality, that a sexual relationship happens between one man and one woman within the grounds of a godly marriage, two people who have committed their lives in a marriage relationship before God. We're taught all sorts of things about biblical sexuality. We're, we're taught all things about what the world's ethics are. Hey, it's okay to do this or to do that as long as you don't get caught. I could just go on and on and on about what worms our way, its way into our families from the world's understanding. And yet, Scripture makes it abundantly clear that we are not to be conformed to this world, but that we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. That we need to present our bodies as a living sacrifice before God. That we know, as those that were in the waters of baptism, what did they do? They staked their flag for God in their lives right then. Hey, I want everybody to know I'm living for Jesus which means my life looks differently than people around me because God's my boss, God's the master, God's running the show. So whatever God says, that's what I'm gonna do. Whatever God says to stay away from, I'm not gonna do that. So what we do when we go through the waters of baptism. I'm gonna live for Christ. My life is going to look like Christ. Number three, in light of Christ's promised return, are we making the most of every opportunity to share the good news of the gospel? See, here's the thing. If we aren't living the way that God's called us to live, when we open up our mouths and tell them about the good news of Jesus Christ, it's not going anywhere. When people look at us and say, well, you don't live any differently than me, how is it that you've got the good news? How is it that Jesus has saved you and transformed your life? You're, you're, you look just like me. You talk just like me. You do business just like me. But when we're living faithfully for God and we open up our mouths and we share the gospel of Jesus Christ, people can say, you know what? There's something different about you. You, you don't love yourself. You don't slander people. You don't so on and so on and so on. Your life is different. What, what's different? Hey, I want to tell you what Jesus has done in my life. We take every opportunity. We take things like Christmas parades where the community is and say, hey, how can we be there to share Jesus Christ with those people? Because they need Christ because we don't know when Jesus is coming back. Are we taking every opportunity to share the good news of Jesus Christ? You know why Daniel had the ministry that he had to those around him? Because no matter what God revealed to him about what was coming, he lived faithfully for God. He got up and he did the business of the king. And because of his walk with God, people recognized that he had the power of God in his life. That when he spoke, he was speaking God's message that they needed to hear. May we be believers living for Jesus Christ today in light of what we know is coming. If you are here this morning and you don't know Christ as Savior, Jesus is going to come back. And Scripture makes it abundantly clear that when Jesus returns, He is going to judge. He is going to judge those who are in their sin, and they're going to be punished. They're going to be separated from God for all of eternity in a place called hell. 
our invitation is that you would put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Today, believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Enter into that personal, close relationship with Almighty God. In light of the fact that Jesus someday will come back, and it could be any day.